Good evening. A strong jobs report, Hunter Biden's problems with Russia, House debates pot, and deaths of prisoners from Rikers at a mysterious hospital ward on the 19th floor at Bellevue Hospital. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, April 1st, 2022. Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a decree on gas trade rules for unfriendly countries, as they called it today, under the new payment system. Gas buyers will have to open accounts in Russian banks using Russian currency, called the ruble, to pay for the gas supplied from April 1st. But Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov stressed that gas supplies will not be halted on April 1st, quote, if there is no confirmation of payment in rubles. He says the Russian-based energy giant Gazprom will continue to work with its buyers. Peskov also addressed news from German media that Berlin is considering nationalizing German subsidiaries owned by Russian corporations. He says such a move would be a serious violation of international law. In related news, Europe vowed to stay united against Russia's demand that they pay for its gas in rubles as the threat of an imminent supply halt has now been eased. Putin's decision to enforce ruble payments has boosted the Russian currency, which fell to historic lows at the start of the invasion, which Moscow calls a special military operation. The ruble has since recovered much lost ground. European gas prices have climbed as a result of uncertainty over Putin's plan with rises of 7 to 10 percent since his order coming close to previous peaks. Meanwhile, in the war, firefighters continued extinguishing fire at, at an oil depot in the Russian city of Belgorod near Ukraine. Helicopters, Russia says, were launched by Ukraine, entered Russia and blasted the oil storage depot. Russia's emergency readiness organization reported eight fuel tanks at the oil depot on fire with uh, fire and rescue units arriving at the scene. Ukraine denied responsibility for the fiery blast, but if confirmed, it would be the war's first known attack in which Ukrainian aircraft penetrated Russian airspace. Meanwhile, Russia continued withdrawing some of its ground forces from areas around Kyiv after saying earlier this week it would reduce military activity near the Ukrainian capital and the northern city of Chernihiv to promote trust at the bargaining table. Ukrainian troops exploited the pullback on the ground by mounting counterattacks and retaking a number of towns and villages. And the Russian Armed Forces reported today that five biolaboratories have been shut down as a result of the Russian military operation in Ukraine. During a press conference in Moscow, Igor Kirillov said an important result of the special operation by the Russian Armed Forces was the termination of five key biolaboratories where work with anthrax, tularemia, brucellosis, cholera, leptospirosis and African swine fever pathogens was carried out. During the briefing, the Russian Ministry of Defense spokesperson claimed to be in possession of the correspondence of Hunter Biden, the son of U.S. President Joe Biden, confirming, according to Kirillov, the young Biden's financial link with the biolaboratories in Ukraine. He says the information obtained demonstrates the direct involvement of the U.S. military department and their contractors in the planning and implementation of Pentagon projects in Ukraine. He goes on to say, we believe that the listed officials should answer questions about the true purpose of these works. 
Russia's chief of biological defense forces added, the documents demonstrate the factual violations of the United States and Ukrainian commitments under treaty and UN resolutions. We'll be talking more about that story later on in the newscast. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced today it's ending a policy limiting asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border to prevent the spread of COVID-19. The government says it's already making plans to erect tents and take other steps to prepare for an expected influx of migrants. The policy, known as Title 42 Authority, is named for a 1944 public health law to prevent communicable disease. The termination of the policy takes effect May 23rd. The seven-week delay before the policy expires is meant to allow officials to step up staffing at the border. In the interim, nearly all migrants seeking to cross into the U.S. are expected to be turned away under a health authority that U.S. officials acknowledge is no longer necessary. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said the actions would endanger Texans. Homeland Security officials said this week that about 7,100 migrants were coming daily, compared with an average about 5,900 a day in February. And America's employers added 431,000 jobs in the sign of the economy's resilience in the face of a still destructive pandemic, Russia's war against Ukraine and the highest inflation in 40 years. The government's report today showed that last month's job growth helped shrink the unemployment rate to 3.6 percent. That's the lowest rate since the pandemic erupted two years ago and just above the half century low of 3.5 percent that was reached two years ago. President Biden spoke about the report today. Today, we learned that in March, our economy created 431,000 jobs. Nice sound to it. We also learned that in January and February, our economy created 100,000 more jobs than we previously had thought. That means that over the last three months, the economy has created more than a half million, more than 500,000 jobs a month. Over the course of my presidency, our recovery has now created 7.9 million jobs. More jobs created over the first 14 months of any presidency in any term ever. And that's striking. But what's even more striking is this. In March, the unemployment rate fell to 3.6%, down from 6.4% when I took office about 15 months ago. The fastest decline in unemployment to start a president's term ever recorded. In fact, there have been only three months in the last 50 years where the uh, unemployment rate in America is lower than it is now. And that means what it means is clear, what is very clear. America is our back to work. And that's good news for millions of families who have a little more breathing room and the, and the dignity that comes from earning a paycheck, just the dignity of having a job. And more and more Americans get jobs as they do. It's going to help ease the supply pressures we've seen. And that's good news for fighting inflation. It's good news for our economy, and it means that our economy has gone from being on the mend to being on the move. The investigation into President Biden's son Hunter's tax problems has expanded with a steady stream of witnesses appearing before a grand jury in Delaware. You may remember former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who's a close associate of former President Donald Trump, said shortly before the 2020 election that he had possession of a laptop once belonging to Hunter Biden that supposedly contained a scandalous trove of emails, texts, sexual materials and financial documents involving Hunter, his associates and even his family. The computer's contents reportedly detailed how the son of the man who is now president regularly used his dad's political clout to capitalize on overseas business dealings. One of those dealings related to Ukrainian gas company Burisma, where Hunter was a board member. The other business arrangement related to a Chinese firm 
an energy firm, CEFC, which over the course of 14 months paid $4.8 million to entities controlled by Biden Hunter and his uncle James, who is the president's older brother. The problem? Except for Trump-friendly media outlets, much of the mainstream press ignored the issue. Yesterday, in an interview broadcast on a conservative news program, Trump alleged the mayor of Moscow's wife gave $3.5 million to Hunter Biden in a bid to curry favor with his father. Why did the mayor of Moscow's wife give the Bidens, both of them, $3.5 million? That's a lot of money. She gave him $3.5 million. So now I would think Putin would know the answer to that. I think he should release it. I think we should know that answer. Trump has long claimed without providing evidence that the younger Biden received the funds from Elena Baterina, wife of the late Moscow mayor Yuri Lushkov, in a bid to curry favor with Joe Biden. And the Biden administration today unveiled tougher fuel economy standards for vehicles that would reverse his predecessor Donald Trump's rollback of U.S. regulations aimed at improving gas mileage and cutting tailpipe pollution. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy made the announcement. Starting in model year 2024, when these standards take effect, Americans buying a new vehicle will spend less on gas than they would have if we hadn't taken this step. And again, this is why presidents of both parties have supported CAFE standards. Before those CAFE standards started in the 1970s, the average vehicle got about 13 miles per gallon. With the standards we're announcing today, by 2026, the average vehicle will get 49 miles per gallon. Welcome, Advisor McCarthy. The transportation sector in America is our largest source of climate pollution and a major contributor to local air quality challenges. It is not about pain and suffering. It's about grabbing the future for our industry, for our unions, and for America. That's what we're doing today. Since 1975, the CAFE program has reduced American oil consumption by roughly 5 billion barrels a day. And better fuel economy is going to continue to reduce our reliance on foreign oil and protect families from future price spikes, which, of course, is top of mind today as we deal with the impacts from Putin's war. U.S. law requires 18 months lead time, so the final rules must be signed by March 31st to take effect in the 2024 model year that begins in September 2023. Under Trump, the government rolled back fuel economy standards in 2020 set under his predecessor, Barack Obama, to require only one and a half percent annual increase in gas mileage efficiency through 2026. Obama had required five percent annual increases. And in breaking news... Here in New York, a U.S. judge refused to throw out Ghislaine Maxwell's sex trafficking conviction today, despite a juror's failure to disclose before the trial began that he'd been a victim of childhood sexual abuse. Maxwell, a British socialite, was convicted in December of helping the millionaire Jeffrey Epstein sexually abuse several teenage girls. U.S. Judge Allison J. Nathan declined to order a new trial weeks after questioning the juror under oath in a New York courtroom about why he failed to disclose his personal history as an abuse survivor on a questionnaire during the jury selection process. The juror said he skimmed way too fast through the questionnaire and didn't intentionally give the wrong answer to a question about sex abuse. He said, I didn't lie in order to get on this jury. In her opinion, Nathan said the juror's failure to disclose his prior sexual abuse during the jury selection process was highly unfortunate, but not deliberate. 
And the United States House passed the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement, or MORE Act, by 220 to 204 today. It would legalize and decriminalize marijuana at the federal level by removing it from the Controlled Substance Act, sending the bill now to the Senate. Democratic Representative Jerry Nadler, who sponsored the bill, called it in a statement prior to the vote long overdue legislation that would reverse decades of failed federal policies based on the criminalization of marijuana. House members, starting with Jerry Nadler, debated the bill before it was passed. It's for expungement or resentencing of certain federal marijuana arrests and convictions, and it supports expungement programs at the state and local levels. In addition, the bill authorizes a sales tax on marijuana sales and directs those revenues to an opportunity trust fund to support communities harmed by the war on drugs. It also establishes a wide range of grant programs to support equal access to the benefits of decriminalization. Speaker, there's a war raging in Ukraine, killing thousands and thousands of innocent people. Gasoline, diesel, grocery prices are through the roof. For all practical purposes, we don't have a southern border anymore, so hundreds of thousands of immigrants continue to flood into the United States, and the situation there is about to get much worse. Rampant inflation is making short work of the hard-earned money of all Americans, but the main priority for the Democrats this week isn't Ukraine, skyrocketing gasoline prices, 8% inflation, or the border crisis. No one said it's marijuana. The picture behind me is a hoop house. It's about 100 feet long and 50 feet wide. At current retail, it will produce about $6 million worth of marijuana a year. To put this in perspective, there are currently 180 grows like this in Jackson County, Oregon alone, many of them which are illegal, hundreds upon hundreds of hoop houses. It's absolutely essential that any bill legalizing marijuana include significant funding for law enforcement, which will be absolutely and particularly necessary to control the cartels that will flood into farming areas such as southern Oregon. Simply setting up a penalty, as this bill does, for failing to register will not work. Now, we're all going to go home this weekend. And what are our constituents going to be talking about? They're going to be talking about the price of gas. They're going to be talking about the price of food. They're going to be talking about the price that they have to pay to heat their homes. They're going to turn on the TV. And what are they going to see? They're going to see in real time Ukrainians being bombed by Russia, fleeing for their life. And what are we doing here in Congress? Talking about marijuana? The enforcement of marijuana laws has been a major driver of mass incarceration in the United States. Hundreds of thousands of people are arrested each year for marijuana-related charges, very often just possession. This has in turn led to our federal prison system operating at 103% of capacity. And too many of these offenders are serving time for nonviolent drug-related crimes. A drug-related conviction, even for possession, can be devastating for the rest of a person's life, making it difficult or even impossible to vote, get a job, be approved for a loan, or even qualify for a government program. And as we know, these consequences have had massively disproportionate impact on communities of color, as Chairman Jeffries just mentioned. It's a multi-billion dollar industry also. It brings tax revenue of billions to our states. Now over 950 people are arrested daily for marijuana-related offenses. This is truly unjust. So we must end this failed policy of marijuana uh, prohibition, which has led to the shattering of so many lives, primarily black and brown people. And yes, that is extremely important. It's time to repair the damage. It's time to provide equal justice 
for those who have been unduly incarcerated. Do you know that 150 million Americans have used marijuana? Half of the country, and that's just the people who are being honest about it, half of the country has used marijuana, but you can still be denied security clearance and government employment for having once used marijuana. That is plainly stupid and wrong and unfair. And we are disqualifying tens of millions of qualified and excellent job applicants for federal government employment. Even if this bill were to become law, the denial of these security clearances was based on a person's willful violation of a law at the time. But agencies are assessing whether these people should have access to national security sensitive information. The consideration isn't whether the person uses marijuana, it's whether the person is willing to undermine the rule of law. I think the distinguished gentleman seems to concede the general principle that we should not be denying the opportunity of federal employment to half of the country because they've used marijuana before. And so his argument seems to be we've denied so many people that this would be uh, an imposition on federal bureaucrats to go back and tell people when they've been wronged in the past simply by telling the truth and saying that they've once used marijuana. In fact, most of these agencies don't even require that there's any kind of criminal prosecution or conviction. If they, they ask you, have you used marijuana? And if people say, yes, I used it once in college or whatever, they can't get a job. That makes no sense. We're doing that to our constituents. So yes, let's go back and see how many people we've denied the opportunity of federal employment to because they've used marijuana, which is lawful in most of the country country now, either on a medicinal basis or on a recreational basis for adult consenting individuals who decide that's a decision they want to make. Let's grow up as a country about this and let's stop discriminating against our own people. And that are some uh, highlights of today's uh, debate over marijuana. The bill passed, as we reported earlier, 220 to 204. It would have difficulties passing the Senate as the last time the House passed a legalization bill. It wasn't taken up for debate within the Senate, and some Democratic senators, including Chuck Schumer and Cory Booker, are set to introduce their own legalization bill this year. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The NYPD is calling on the city to help find whoever is responsible for the death of a 12-year-old boy in East Flatbush Thursday night. According to police, the boy was sitting inside a parked car with two family members eating dinner when he was shot in the head. The boy's 20-year-old aunt, the driver of the vehicle, was also shot. She was taken to Kings County Hospital in critical but stable condition. Police say people inside two dark-colored sedans fired shots at each other, and the family was caught in the crossfire. An eight-year-old girl in the back seat was uninjured. At a news conference today, Mayor Eric Adams declared the shooter would be caught, but he spent a lot of the press conference defending his new anti-gun unit as the proper response to the uptick in shootings in the city. We're going to be proactive, and one of the ways of being proactive is my anti-gun unit. And people continually say this, and I find it surprising. People keep saying that you're controversial anti-gun unit. Controversial to who? Everywhere I go in this city, New York is uh, thanking me for putting in place a unit that is targeting those who are carrying illegal guns. And so I think we need to stop listening to the loudest and start listening to the majority. This is not Eric's plan. The polls are showing that New Yorkers are in support of what I'm doing to deal with gun violence in this city. So it's not controversial. 
is controversial to those who are the most sophisticated on Twitter and social media and who yells the loudest. But everyday New Yorkers are saying, Eric, we're with you. They give me that thumbs up every day. We want you to go after these illegal guns and not have people that are heavy handed. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm proud of doing it. Not everybody is as confident as the mayor and some of those loud voices the mayor was referring to joined together approximately a dozen family members, medical and hospital workers uh, from the organization Eyes on You. They uh, they joined together and arrived at Bellevue Hospital to demand to meet with staff working on the 19th floor prison ward to deliver a proposal to health and hospitals and correctional health services staff. The Eyes on You committee, uh, which organized the action, have been trying to get in touch with Correctional Health Services and New York City's Health and Hospitals Corporation staff for at least six months. In the past year, 19 inmates have died under what activists call suspicious circumstances at the jail ward. A former incarcerated person, Malik, and a caregiver at Bellevue named Cassius spoke with WBAI today about what they say is a worsening health crisis at the Bellevue jail ward. They say New Yorkers who have an alarmingly high rate of death due to medical neglect and abuse by both corrections and medical staff are asking for help. We came to Bellevue to deliver a letter of demands to allow some of our medical providers that are a part of our group to be able to be able to provide care for the people who are incarcerated and demand release of them. So we were delivering this letter to people who are in leadership for correctional health services and we were walking in the building and then we're met by security and essentially we're just accosted and the group was majority women and folks of color and met with leadership who wouldn't let us actually deliver this letter to correctional health services and said that they would deliver it on our behalf um, and that they said that they called upstairs but they hadn't actually called upstairs and gave us inaccurate phone numbers at first until we like double checked them so we were just met with a lot of resistance by trying to deliver this letter to um, ensure care for the people who are being incarcerated from Rikers and treated at Bellevue. Tell me what that letter said. So the letter was basically being addressed to Mr. Heinen, who is the supposed to be the head of CHS in Bellevue. According to Bellevue, they're saying that he doesn't have any control there. When we spoke to the staff there, there was no one who knew who was really in charge on the 19th floor. We have had 19 deaths over the past maybe nine months, two so far this year, okay? And then I think it was 16 or 17 uh, last year. So this letter was really essentially saying that, look, we are families of those who are on the inside and also other members. There are lawyers, doctors, and nurses who were very concerned about the level of treatment or lack thereof that was being provided. We had a young man recently die because he got an orange enlarged in his throat and couldn't breathe. Uh, it took them, who knows, the amount of time that it took them to get to him before he died. And the most recent one was an individual who happened to have been stabbed. It wasn't the stabbing that killed him, but it was the lack there of getting him to the hospital as to the cause of his death. I think it took them, who knows, every bit of an hour or two hours to get this young man to a medical. What are you asking for? What relief to this problem? We're asking for the relief of many of these uh, men and women who are being held there. Obviously, a lot of them are being held uh, with these very menial cases.
these nonviolent crimes. And for those who are unfortunately aren't able to be released, we're asking that the doctors and nurses who are working with Eyes on You be allowed to come in, talk with these men, and of course, provide for them the things that they need. Cassius, is there anything that you have? We know that jails are inherently violent places that do not increase care medically, psychiatrically, spiritually for people who are incarcerated. The demand to release people is also the demand to close these New York City jails and prisons that are creating worse conditions for the people who are there and are not actually contributing to the compassionate care that people deserve. What is Eyes on You? Eyes on You is a community group that has been constructed of lawyers, doctors, community members, ex-offenders to fight against what is known as this Leviathan, this very evil system and what's taking place within it. Is what's going on in Rikers like a typical problem you find anywhere or is it like worse at Rikers than let's say a comparable jail? Have they gotten worse or this is just typical? We have done some statistical work with regard to some of the issues that are happening. There has been no other city and or state who has lost the amount of men and women that we have lost in the last year here in New York City. Why are they getting worse? One is that we have the culture within these institutions need to completely be abolished. We Mm -hmm. obviously have seen a shortage of staff which has been widely, widely publicized and talked about all the way from the mayor's office on down. We have seen the administration change two or three times in the last eight to nine months. There is no consistency. Basically, those would be the number one reasons why these prisons are not operating. There is no way for them to really be better, but of course they could be a little bit different. In the case of Bellevue too, we see the expansion of policing in prisons and surveillance in ways that makes it look more comfortable, more cushy, like for example, closing Rikers Island to open new community jails. Like that's one way that we see the expansion of prisons and policing. And so then that culture just continues to expand and it continues to grow. So that's one of the reasons why we are organizing against this very violent system. And that is the Eyes on You Rikers Committee speaking earlier today. And finally, Amazon workers in Staten Island, New York, voted to unionize today, marking the first successful U.S. organizing effort in the retail giant's history and handing an unexpected win to the nascent group that fueled the union drive. Organizer Chris Smalls, fired for union organizing at Amazon Staten Island Warehouse one year ago, celebrated the victory today with other workers. Amazon set up a building. And, and people in the community are upset because of the traffic they cause, because of the pollution they cause. There's a lot of different issues to talk about when it comes to Amazon. But I can tell you what, Amazon doesn't become Amazon without the people. And we make it, we make Amazon what it is. We did it! Wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got to thank Amazon because they made this all possible. <laughs> And celebrating workers today at Amazon, they finally won their union. And that's some of the news for Friday, April 1st, 2022. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineers Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Don't be fooled. It's April Fool's. Thanks for joining us.